welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast. My name is Brent Davis and I am the host of the podcast. Now, this is my podcast where I get to talk to coaches about coaching and today I have got the the, the fortunate time to chat with Nick Belowski. Thanks for coming in and talking to me tonight, Nick. Thanks, Brent. I uh, really appreciate the chance to be on the show. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I think we're going to have a really cool chat. Um, I think you've got lots of good information to share, and we're going to dig deep into into your background. But for those that don't know who you are, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. So uh, my name's Nick Belowski. I'm a PJ professional. I've been playing golf for well over 20 years now. Uh, been a PJ professional since 2007 was when I finished uh, the traineeship. And I was quite fortunate. I've been uh, working for the PGA since uh, late 2008, so I got pretty lucky early on in my uh, golf career and my coaching career. And it's uh, – sorry, I was just going to say, and uh, fast-forwarding to today, I've been in the the role that I'm in now, PGA Coaching Programs Manager, uh, since late 2012. So it's been been a good ride, been a good journey. I didn't think I would – have the ability to be in the position I'm in now for as long as it's been. So I'm quite happy. Yeah, no, that's really cool. We're certainly going to pick apart that role that you're doing at the moment. But before we do that, tell me about your your traineeship. Who did you do your traineeship under? Yeah, so I, I did the traineeship at Werribee Park Golf Club, which is a sort of semi-public, semi-private course in the western suburbs of, of Melbourne. Um, and I actually I was lucky I had two employers – uh, right the way through. So there was two head professionals, which were David Wren and Mark Miller. That They were great for me. I was a, a junior member at Werribee Park uh, prior to doing the traineeship. And both Mark and David just su- suggested that I do it. I actually hadn't given it much thought prior to them actually asking me. And they were great. I had a lot of uh, autonomy where I was working and able to do most of the things that I wanted to do. Obviously, I got pulled into line every now and again, but um, they were great bosses to work with. So what type of player were you when you – because you, you said that you weren't um, – you hadn't thought about doing the trainee program. So were you a like a two handicap, four handicap? Scratch player. Yeah, yeah. So I think I was I was off uh, I was off three when I um, applied for the trainee program and got in. So basically, only just scraping through. Um, but when I got into the trainee program, I realised uh, how far off the marker was. Um, you know, a lot of coaches I, I speak with, you know, we know that a three handicap really isn't a three handicap. You know, when you go and play at other golf courses, you're having you know, 78 or 80 pretty regularly. So I had to sharpen the game up pretty quickly. And um, I was playing amateur tournaments prior to uh, doing the trainee program. I got a lot of experience out of that, but I really had to take my game to the next level and sharpen up my skills once I got into the trainee program. So did the coaching come from your employers or did you go and seek it um, from somewhere else? Uh, Well, at the start, it, it came from my employers, so they would they were quite flexible. You know, they'd always let me go out on the range and hit a few balls, and they would pop outside on the, on my days off and help me out. But I think it got to a point where, um, you know, when, when you're paying for information, I think the relationship can just be that little bit better. Um, sometimes you need a little bit more than just a casual eye. You need a bit of a you know you need a, a good solid hour or two hours of somebody to really. 
um, get stuck in and get some good work done. So I ended up uh, paying for coaching. Uh, Rowan Dummett was probably my first long-term coach. Um, when I say long-term, you know, longer than longer than six months. Um, and he really helped me out. He was uh, he was my coach uh, pretty much right throughout the trainee program, and my game went from strength to strength working with him. So I was quite happy. He's certainly on my um, short list to get on the podcast, so I'll have to hit him up to to come in and share some stories about you as well while we're talking to Rowan about about coaching in general. Yeah, well, Rowan and I joke. I think I uh, paid for his uh, BMW and and put the top story on his house. <laughs> I would have had a lot of lessons with him uh, over the years. So it sounds like you obviously clicked with him from a coaching perspective. So. What are some of the things that he did that you that you gelled with as a player? Um, I think he gave me the understanding of my golf swing, which was which was really important. And uh, it's funny with a lot of people that I coach now. Some people will be a bit, a bit precious about changing their swing, but Rowan's approach was always: it might feel uncomfortable, but if your aim is pretty good and you've got your face and path pretty square at the bottom, no matter how it feels, the ball's actually going to go pretty straight. Um, so basically put your ego aside and just get in there and, and make the changes. And we're always quite lucky as well in that there are always a lot better golfers around. So at the time, Rowan was um, one of the, the lead coaches at Albert Park Golf Academy. And they've had a lot of good coaches go through that venue. But, you know, at any one time, you might have the VIS squad will be practicing there or, or Brad Hughes, um, who's made a, a bit of a name for himself coaching. He would be practicing on the range and you'd have a lot of uh, Australasian tour players there practicing as well. So the environment there, even though it was a driving range, was was always pretty good. And um, I was one of those people who would get the lesson, but I would practice beforehand and practice afterwards. So, um Rowan was really generous with his time and um, was always there to give me a, a helping hand when I, you know, fell flat on my face and needed a bit of a pickup. That's cool. It sounds like it'd be pretty cool to be able to be hitting balls beside those tool players, and I'm sure you picked up heaps of little tidbits from those guys just from how they practice and how they hit different shots. Yeah, uh, one of the one of the big things I got I got from watching those tour players uh, practice and even the VIS players was, even though we're at a, a driving range and you know the temptation is just basically to to set up parallel down the mat lines on the driving range and just hit it at one target. They really changed their targets quite a lot. They were hitting different clubs, rotating the mat around and hitting it to different light posts and trying to you know knock the lights off the the light tower and try and hit the light pole with a low four iron and they just had a lot of variety um, in the way they were practicing even though we were just hitting range balls off a mat they they kind of did the best they could at the time well again we, we we talk about this heaps as coaches is trying to make the practice as close to on course play as you can if you can't get out in the golf course try and make the range practice so it sounds like you had a um, pretty early exposure to that type of practice which is which is pretty cool yeah and, and it was always quite competitive as well so if you're practicing on your own which wasn't too often you could obviously you know do all of your ball shaping uh, exercises but when there are people around and, and good players too they're all happy to you know hit different shots at different targets and you know have little side bets and all that type of thing so despite it being a driving range the practice environment was quite good and Although we weren't going on the golf course, um, 
that's probably as good as you can do in a driving range scenario to have to have that good practice environment, have good quality people around, and and you know, be able to change your, your ball flight, change your club, change your trajectory. Hasn't coaching changed? I would have, as a kid myself, and you, you're trying to hit a 30-yard slice or a 40-yard hook and the coach is there saying, oh, don't be stupid, practice properly, whereas we kind of encourage that now in players to to um, play those extreme types of shots because they can come back to some sort of uh, neutral ball flight if they can play the extreme shots. Yeah, that's right, and, and I often use – you know, that very scenario you just spoke about there in my coaching now, you know, if somebody's trying to hit a or struggling to hit a draw, for example, I'll get them to hit, you know, a slice of fade, a hook and a draw. And basically they've just got to figure out what the club delivery needs to be to be able to hit the shot um, that they need to hit. I think that's one of the big differences between amateur players and tour players is the tour player just has really good awareness of where the club is in space and time. And, the little fine-tuning movements and adjustments they need to make to hit the ball the way they want to. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I'm going to be a bit a bit rude here. I'm guessing that you didn't have dreams of being a, a tour player if you came into the Trinity program as a three handicap and were were um, grinding pretty hard to get to get through the playing program. Was uh, there a tour a tour dream at, at some stage? A, a very a very faint dream. Um, and the reason why I say it, it's faint, um, I think the guys and girls that go through the trainee program now, they need to maintain that passion for playing and that um, faint flicker of hope that they might actually be a tour player. Because I, I think if you go into the program without any passion around your playing, then you're probably not going to do the work that's required to actually get through. So my game actually got better and better Um from year to year. So year one, I struggled, but passed. Year two, struggled, but passed as the average kept coming down. And year three was a bit of a breeze, to be honest. I, I worked my tail off um, in the back half of my second year and the first half of year one, uh, sorry, year three. And um, yeah, my, my play was actually quite good at the end of it to the point where I really enjoyed playing. And, uh, you know, I could actually go out and win a bit of money at some of these events and go around a golf course, you know in one under par or even par or something pretty close to that without too much uh, struggle. Nice. I found that I'd be curious on your thoughts on this as a, as a trainee, my scoring improved with a bad, with a worse swing. Mm. So I was probably a much better ball striker when I first started the program, but I, my ability to score during a round improved as the three years progressed. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, that probably wasn't the case for me. I know my golf swing got better from year to year. It got more reliable, so I hit, you know, I hit better shots and had better control of the ball. But you are right. Um, you know, uh, you don't necessarily have to improve your swing technique to to score better. Um, you know, we'll talk about the performance program a little bit later, I gather. But that's one of the first things that I try and help the the guys and girls that come into the program is to get an understanding of their swing try and improve the scoring to start with so they've actually got something to fall back on when we're inevitably making those tough changes. No, that, that completely makes sense. So the trainee program, you did extremely well through that program, top of the class, essentially all the way through, well, I've been told. Yeah, yeah. So I was 
I was fortunate. So 2005, that was my first year. I was the uh, Academy Ducks for Victoria, which is basically just saying that I was academically, I was the best, um, which I, I, I find it amusing, not, not to put any of the current uh, crop of trainees down, but I, I found coming from a university background into the trainee program where all of the work we did was golf-based, um, I just loved it. I really lapped it up and um, almost enjoyed doing the assignments, I would say, um, just because they had that golf context to it. Um, so the, the academics never worried me too much and uh, didn't win any awards in year two, unfortunately. Uh, but year three, I got uh, the Titleist Excellence in Education Scholarship. So I think I've, I finished third nationally with a combined um, academic and, and playing average. Um, I'm not quite sure how they worked it out anymore. But uh, nonetheless, I got a nice little scholarship, which paid for a bit of uh, education and tuition after I finished the trainee program. Nice, sounds good. So, did that kind of spark your your coaching passion, or did you go and play after you finished for a little bit? Uh, I played, I played for a little bit, but I, I was into coaching pretty uh, pretty early on. So, I, I think most coaches would be in this boat where they fit, they might finish the trainee program and they're just getting started in their coaching, but they don't go from zero to forty hours straight away. So, you know, the coaching builds up. So, I had quite a bit of time to practice, which is what I did. So I I think the first year out of the trainee program, I would have played a few uh, pro-ams, um, no major tour events or anything like that, just pro-ams as I would fit into the, the work schedule and the coaching schedule. And then it just went from there. And then basically the coaching just got too busy and, um, you know, the dream of, of playing just dies off a little bit. Although I still enjoy playing now, obviously with uh, the COVID scenario i haven't played like most victorians but i still do enjoy going out and having a hit and just challenging myself and working on things that i shouldn't be working on so where was the first full-time coaching role is that with the pga or did you go out by yourself prior to that role Uh, so i I bounced around a little bit uh, in my first year out so after i finished the trainee program um uh, I, i was i was told at werribee park that you know, I could stay on and coach, but they didn't have any uh, retail work for me to do there. So I did just a few hours of coaching um, early on in my first year out. And then I got a coaching role out at uh, Churchill Park Golf Course um, out in the eastern suburbs, so completely the other side of Melbourne. Um, that was quite good. I had quite a bit of autonomy there. And then Rowan Dummett, who we mentioned earlier, he just um, – bought the the coaching rights or bought the driving range at uh at Berwick the the driving range out there next to the Berwick Montuna Golf Club um and he wanted somebody to look after the business there and do some coaching so that was a bit of a thrill to be honest somebody that um, was a bit of a mentor for me had asked me to come and work for him within six months of um finishing the trainee program so I was I was really happy to go and do that and then the PGA job basically came along six months later after that. I kind of applied for a, a position where I thought I was better than what I actually was, but I, I got quite lucky and got an interview and got offered a job that basically didn't exist. Um, Stuart Leong, who was um, in the position that I'm in now, offered me a position where um, I basically got to coach you know, 25 hours a week um, within a year coming out of the trainee program. So I was quite fortunate there. I kind of fell on my feet, but it was a, a great job. And 
yeah, so I've been working for the PGA ever since. So I'll, I'll come back to that first job with the PGA, but you said something, obviously you got to work with Rowan early on, who you said was a pretty big influence on you mm. um, in your, in your uh, playing career. So how about coaches? Who were the, the guys that you learned from early on that you spent time with that you found that were that pushed you down that coaching path or gave you that good education mm. to improve your skills in coaching? So, so mentor-wise, probably I've learned the most. I'd say off, uh, yeah, Rowan Dummett was certainly an early influ- influence, and the way he coached me sort of influenced the way I coach today. Uh, but as I was sort of focused more and more on coaching, I, I made a real effort to go out and get coaching from other PJ professionals, um, just for the perspective of my own game. So, uh, I ended up getting quite a bit of coaching of Mark Holland, who was the AIS head coach. So he has some great short game material and he's just very, very knowledgeable about um, all things golf. So I, I soaked up all the information that he offered to me. Uh, Dennis McDade I, I saw as well and he was fantastic. He was the VIS coach at the time. Um, so he was great at running a holistic program. So he coached me in a really holistic way. Um, and then basically a lot of the guys that are around those, those Ban Lynch, um, type of guys. So Steve Ban, I've had a number of coaching sessions from, and, and he was fantastic. Um, I get along really well with Benny. Um, and then I guess further away in terms of people that I haven't seen personally, but done a lot of reading and a lot of, uh, watching of videos would be Pete Cowan. Um, I've gotten really heavily into his material. Um, and David Ledbetter as well. Um, yeah, I've read quite a bit of his stuff and watched a lot of his videos and tried to soak up as much as I can. Um, just to digress a little bit as well, I think one of the first PGA trips that I, that I got uh, to, to the US which was a bit of a coaching research trip. I was quite lucky. I actually went to the Ledbetter Academy headquarters at uh, Champions Gate, Orlando, and uh, got a, got a two-hour lesson $450 for two hours US with Bob Law. Uh, but that was that was a great experience just seeing how people in another country go about their, their coaching practices and um, just the whole experience there from start to finish was really good. So I've, I've tried to surround myself with as many people as I can and uh, people a lot more knowledgeable than I am. And hopefully all of that knowledge kind of rubs off on the people I'm coaching now. Sounds great, and I'm extremely jealous of the some of the people you, that you spent some time with. So that's pretty cool. Um, point there that you said you you got some coaching from some players uh, f- uh, f- from some of those coaches. Mm. Do you find that that's better to learn from than just to than to um, than to sit on the driving range and watch those guys coach? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. To be honest, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, if you can do both, which which I have done, um, then then go and do both. Uh, certainly, I think if you're paying for somebody's time and you've got their attention, then you're going to uh, you're going to learn some things, um, and you're gonna, you're going to learn some things that are going to apply uh, to your own game as well. So when they're coaching you, you're not only taking the technical information in, but you, you you're taking in things like how they structure the lesson and their communication and the drills and activities that they do and um, the amount of time that they'll spend on something and how their, their messaging as well, how often they're talking, how often they're not talking. So you're picking up quite a bit of information 
Um, probably the only downside to the fact that, you know, when you're sitting on the range and just watching somebody else give a lesson, sometimes you can't interject and, and ask ask a question that you might want to ask. Um, but having said that, at Albert Park, I remember spending many days there early on in the trainee program where I would just go to the range and not practice. I would just sit at the back of the the back of the um, coaching area that they've got there and I would watch pretty much three lessons go on, go on at once. So you, you might have, say, Rowan Dummett, uh, Steve Brody and Darren Cole all giving a lesson at exactly the same time and you could just kind of tune in and out of whichever lesson you you liked the most or which which lesson um you know seemed to fit with what you with the information that you wanted to get yeah i was i was i was curious because i've heard coaches say that um to just go and tail coaches and see mm. what they do and i've heard coaches say go and get coaching from someone because you'll you'll learn so much more but there's probably pros and cons for both strategies, I think. I think if you're if you're getting the coaching, you're probably only getting the information that's pertinent to your own game. Mm. Whereas if you're seeing five or six different coaching sessions across a, a couple of days worth of tailing, you're probably seeing um, the variety of coaching strategies being used. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, if if you can go and watch some coaches coach, I you know. I would urge anybody to go and do it, but if you can try and see some coaches that have some more longer term clients, like watching that churn and burn lesson, the the quick fix lesson is great. You can pick up some valuable information with that. But I really wanted to see how somebody would, you know, coach somebody for the, you know, third, fourth, fifth time or, you know, even longer, you know, having a twelve month plan or longer with somebody just to see what they're working on, how long it takes. I think that's one one thing that I think coaches understand it for the most part, but maybe not students. They don't really have an understanding for how long uh, this game takes to get good um, and to actually change things and move the needle. It takes uh, a pretty concerted effort over a long period of time to be able to do it. It does. I would tend to enforce that point pretty heavily that the, the, the club golfer just – they don't get the time it takes to get better. It just yeah. takes a, it just takes heaps of hard work. So, talking back to that first job at the PGA, what did that involve? So, you obviously it was at Sandhurst where the PGA office is. Yeah, yeah. So, talk me through some of the parts of that job. So, the the original job that I applied for was um, was head coach of a program called the China Elite Program. So. The Li Ning uh, Sports Foundation, um, for lack of a better word. So Li Ning, for those that don't know, is a pretty large apparel um, provider throughout China. Um, they're kind of like the Nike of China, if you like. So they sponsored um, 12 athletes to come out to Australia for two years for training. So I actually applied for the head coach position there, less than a year out of my time, thinking I was much better than I was. Um, and surprise, surprise, I didn't get that job. Um, and I didn't think too much of it, but maybe, I don't know, four to six weeks after I did the interview, Stuart Leong, who was the program manager at the time, called me back and said, look, unfortunately you didn't get the position, um, which I'm sure you understand, but, um, I was really impressed with the way you interviewed and, you know, what you've done in your career to date. Um, and we want to create a position for you. So basically, they created a role for me where I was the assistant coach for that uh, that program. So I got to work um, hand in hand with Tim Wendell, 
um, who I should have mentioned before as a bit of a mentor, but sorry, Tim, if you end up listening to this. Um, so I worked with Tim Wendell on that one, and we also had the Roval program as well. So the Roval program has become um, one of the top junior development programs or school-based development programs in the country. And I was fortunate enough to work on that program quite early on when it was based at the Sandhurst Club uh, before it's now moved to Waverley, um, along with Tim. But that was really good. So I would still do the odd private lesson for the the punter, if you like, you know, that that person off the mid-range handicap with a slice. But for the most part, uh, you know, within a year of finishing the trainee program, I, I walked into basically 25 hours of, of coaching a week with junior athletes, you know, age sort of 12 to, to 17. Um, the China students were a bit older. They were sort of 16 and 17. But I had really good exposure early on to that um, youth development um, market. Um, and I've kind of been near that space ever since. Uh, to be honest, I haven't really had a lot of time coaching that uh, that punter um, although I still do it, but you know, a very large majority of the coaching I've done, probably 99% of it has been in that youth coaching space. Um, I'll, I'll just pipe up there and say, don't feel too sorry for yourself that you, that you didn't get that job because I think I applied for that job as well and I didn't get it either. So <laughs> I, think, I think Tim beat both of us into that role early on. Yeah, I'm well, sure I apply for that role as well. You would have been much more qualified than I was at that stage. Um, it's quite funny looking back, thinking that I even had the nerve and the audacity to apply for it, that I could be a head coach within uh, within a year of coming out of the program. But um, I guess that's that's probably testament to the the mentors and the good training that I had um, growing up and through the trainee program that I actually thought within a year of coming out that I was that I was ready made. Um, which I clearly wasn't, but I'm, I'm glad that I had the confidence to actually apply for the job because I certainly wouldn't be in the position I'm in today without having applied for that and not getting it. I, I, 200% um, on the same path as you in that one. And you have to have that confidence. I, I Again, I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but when I was coaching overseas in Taiwan, um, that was – I was in over my head when I first started over there. I'll tell you straight away, my goal swing understanding wasn't where it should have been. Um, and I found out some of the stuff I was coaching was incorrect pretty quickly because I had 20 players that could do exactly the stuff I was telling them to do <laughs> and it didn't work. So, um, But you have to have that confidence. You have to have that confidence in yourself to be able to put yourself out there and try and you do it and you improve on it as, as you keep going forward. Yeah, I think probably one of the, the big – uh, strengths or assets to that situation that we've both been in working on those long-term programs is at least you get the chance to reiterate. The unfortunate thing, I think, for most coaches um, is they don't get the feedback that they probably deserve. So by that, I mean they'll give a lesson to somebody um, and they might give a great lesson for all they know, but if that person never comes back and we don't know why they didn't come back, then they don't get the feedback. They might not have came back because you actually fixed the problem and they don't need any more help. But the coach never gets that feedback, whereas in the programs that we've worked on, if you make a mistake, you find out pretty quickly either the next day that you know the person can't actually do what you want them to do or three weeks later the student is playing really poorly and basically it's it's your fault, it's, it's your information. But at least you get the chance to follow it up and fix it and your coaching uh, methodology kind of um, moves along 
along that path as in you get to try things out, you figure out what works and what doesn't pretty quickly. And then that kind of steers you in the direction that you need to be steered in. And, you know, if you do it for long enough, um, you end up with some, some pretty good, you know, coaching methods and some good communication styles and some good drills that you can use and throw into the mix. And it becomes a bit more of a predictable formula and a, a pr- more predictable outcome for you as a coach. So, so talk me through some of the training techniques that you're exposed to with the Roville program with Tim that you probably hadn't seen before. Yeah, so I guess a lot of the training that um, I had growing up was really heavily technique based, um, and, and Tim was super, super big on people having game sense and game awareness, which is a term that we hear getting thrown around in the in the football or in the AFL quite a bit. But when we're talking about game sense and game awareness, we're talking about um, just having the awareness for what you need to be doing at any particular time in a round of golf. And a lot of people don't have that. You know, they'll be just playing golf swing the entire way around a golf course. Um, So we were really big on making sure that the students, you know, even from the age of 12, you know, making sure that they understood their swing as best as they could and why it worked and why it didn't. And then the little, um, I guess the little things they had to tweak in their own game to get the best out of themselves. Um, and we, we focus quite heavily on people's ability to, um, to, to score um, to the point where we, we had uh, several games that would play, but basically we would um, kind of divide the score scorecard up into opportunity holes, 50-50 holes and challenge holes. And when we would train, we'd go out on the golf course and we would make holes that were just opportunity holes. So we would play off the ladies' tees on every hole. We might only get to play six holes, but we'd play off the ladies' tees and we'd actually um, we would print out yardage books for people. So normally you just have one yardage book um, that you'd keep in your golf bag forever. But one of the things that I would do, and Tim would get me to do this, was we'd print out a yardage book for the the course that we're playing. So let's say we're playing the Sandhurst North course. Every time we go out and play, we'd print a brand new fresh yardage book. And before we would start the round, we'd actually draw the game plan out in a, in a Sharpie on the particular holes that we're going to play. And then as we were playing it, we would have the chance to obviously adjust the game plan if we didn't pick something up with the conditions or the weather. Um, and then maybe with a dotted line on the same yardage book, we would actually write down or track where the ball actually went so we can see how good we were relative to the game plan and then whether it was you know skill errors that were letting us down or whether it was a planning error from there so we got really big into that you know the the planning the tactics and the execution um which was uh, it was a bit of a rude shock early on in the program that we were working on that sort of stuff because you know my uh lens of golf coaching was really just based on technique you know set up playing pivot um and and rhythm and timing um and then i worked out pretty quickly that that didn't have much to do with anything um, that that ability to score and that you know the planning the tactics the preparation the strategy all that stuff that um, good players have that's what we needed to work on so the training program that we we devised was really based on that you know we would have 12 year olds keeping pretty basic stats um on their game and the stats that we got from the training would then feed back into the skills testing that we created and then the the training that we actually did as well. So it was pretty rare to see a student just kind of hitting balls on the range just for the sake of hitting balls. You know, we always had 
the witches' hats out and the, the the targets and you know the corridors and the the pitching ladders, um, just just all that stuff that went into trying to develop a player. So the training environment was was really good. It was head and shoulders above just the regular driving range environment that I was exposed to growing up. Oh, that that is that's, that that sounds really cool. But I was curious. You actually probably answered the question halfway through that. That, that answer then was how much did your coaching change based on exposure to that? Were you kind of headed down that path uh, via your own study or were you just kind of um, completely blown away? And I think you said that you, you completely changed your ideas. You were pretty technique-focused as a coach early on and then yeah. changed it. Based yeah, on that. I, I was pretty technique focused. I'd say I was very sports science focused as well. So I always had an appreciation for biomechanics and um, gym work and kind of meshing the two together to try and change the swing. Um, so I, I thought my understanding of that and how to implement change in that area was pretty good. Uh, but what I didn't realize was just how small a part of the game uh, that is. And, you know, the tactics, the strategy, and the, the training is really. Um, the building blocks for what coaches should be working on, I think, in in my opinion. Um, and once you've got somebody's swing to a certain point and their ball control to a certain point, then it's just really about applying that and trying to get the best out of themselves. And, uh, you know, a guy like Jordan Spieth, I think, is probably a really good example of that where, you know, technically he's probably not the most proficient guy out there, um, but for the most part his ball control is really good and he won – those majors, um, what are we talking, five years ago now, he won those majors just purely based off his ability to score and strategize and think his way around a golf course. How did the, the kids and probably the parents as well um, come at that type of training? Did they have a preconceived idea about the program was going to be all about having the perfect golf swing? And how did you how did you, you – um, educate the players and the parents that you're heading down the right path. Yeah, I think that the parents, when they initially would come to a program like that, uh, would come in with that understanding that, you know, the golf swing would have to be perfect. It was pretty rare that would actually get a parent that was a golfer and an educated golfer. Um, So every year we would have um, at least one parent information night where basically we would talk about the training program and what we were going to do with with the students. And the parents didn't know what we were talking about, but they just thought that it sounded good. And it obviously sounded good enough that they were willing to um, you know, let let their kids come to the school and then be be coached by us as well. But uh, the the kids themselves, they, they really loved it. Um, they loved having, um, I wouldn't say I was a fatherly figure, but having somebody like Tim who would treat the kids like um, they were his own son or daughter. Um, he he was really good at striking a balance between being tough but fair. And nearly every student um, responded well to that, I would say. They loved the, the tough but fair approach. Um, so, yeah, we didn't, re- didn't really have any problems with students not uh, adapting to the coaching style too much. And the ones that did didn't last very long. But that program, just to give you an idea, basically grew in numbers every year. So we're always able to re- uh, retain students, um, which is a good sign that you're coaching pretty well. Um, but we're always able to grow the student base as well from year to year. So I think when I first started working on that program, we – 
we might have only had six or seven students from memory. Um, and then by the time I finished working on that, we were, um, I think we had about 30 students, um, which was which was good. It made the golf club at Sandhurst a really good environment because at any one time you could walk out into the range and the, the driving range would look like a tour event. You know, there were just people everywhere working on their game and chipping and putting and hitting shots and doing drills and exercises and playing competitions against each other. So it turned out to be a really good environment. Awesome stuff. How did you? How did the Chinese players come at that type of training? I, I found in Taiwan that the, the players were pretty good, but the key stakeholders behind the players weren't quite so open to that type of training. So how did the the Chinese team go with that? Yeah, they, they struggled with it early on. I think the um, you just hit the nail on the head there. The stakeholders probably struggled with it more than the players. The players loved it because all of a sudden they could start to connect the way they were training with how they were they were scoring. Um, so they were they were brought up on that idea of you know the golf swing's got to be perfect, and when I swing it perfect, then I'll be able to score. Um, they they couldn't comprehend that um, you know you could have a pretty average looking golf swing, but if you knew what was going on at the bottom of the swing, you'd be able to figure it out and put a score together. Um, so they responded quite well and. Um, I think it was more the the stakeholders that determined the life of that program. I think we got probably, I don't think we quite made it to three years with those Chinese students. I think we got to two and a half years um, before they came home. Um, So that was a stakeholder decision to bring them home. A lot of the students um, stayed around or even came back um, at later dates, which I I think is testament to um, how well we we did with them and how much they enjoyed it as well. That's cool. So that role obviously was on for a while and then you shifted over to the role that you're in now or was there somewhere in between? No. So so essentially I got forced into applying for the, the role that I'm in now. So what happened was uh, Stuart Leong was the, the program manager at the time and Tim Wendell and myself were the coaches on those on those programs that we had. Um, Tim was basically the head coach and um, I was the assistant for, for lack of a better word or the lackey um, and then Stuart moved on to bigger and better things um, I think he got the coaching itch back and didn't really want to be sitting in the office too much so he left um, his position at the PGA and at about the same time um, Tim was moving on to take the Roval program elsewhere as well so basically the position at the PGA became available um, and I kind of read the, the writing on the wall where it was I either had to go along for the ride um, with Roval and what was going on there at a different golf course or I kind of had to apply for the for the position and uh, kind of rebirth the learning centre and recreate a few things. So that's what I ended up doing. So I was, to be honest, I was quite happy doing what I was doing. Um you know, if those programs had had stayed at Sandhurst, um, doing what they were doing, and Tim had had stayed on, it's quite feasible that I'd still be doing that right now. But that didn't happen, and you know, I, I applied for the the position that I'm in now, coaching programs manager, and was was lucky to get it. Which I think I applied for as well. Maybe I didn't get it in that one too. So you're um you're, you're killing me in these jobs, mate. What's going on? <laughs> I'll no, give, give you a few. I'll give you a few pointers or something, mate. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, 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 you, you probably should. So this role now, it's obviously uh, you're involved with the PGA Centre of 
learning and performance. Yeah. Um, so you're in charge of the programs there. So you have a have a teaching pro in there yeah. um, that works. Kim, who I'm going to get on the podcast at some stage as well, very very soon. Going to have a chat to him about his coaching. You should. Um, yeah. And there's some other programs in there. Can you talk me through some of those programs? Yeah, so I guess the, the programs we've got going at the moment. So the main one is the the PJ Performance Program. I'll just I'll I guess now I'll briefly touch on the ones that we've had going, and then we can branch out into any ones that you want. But the PJ Performance Program's been up and going since two thousand and fifteen. Um, that's kind of been a pillar program for what we've got going on. Uh, in recent years, we've done a similar thing to the Roval Program, but um, it's with the Flinders Golf Academy. So that's in its uh, early stages. Um, we're kind of only two years into that, and this year it's obviously been pretty badly affected with with COVID, so we haven't been able to coach much in that program um, at all. Uh, and the First Tee program, which is another uh, youth development program in my portfolio that I look after, that's in its first year uh, this year. So that um, let's go to the performance program. Talk me through what. Th- that actually involves in detail. So you get some players that sign up for that program and their goals are uh, to get to improve their golf to a certain standard? Yeah. So uh, the, the evolution of that program has actually been quite uh, quite interesting. So when we first started it, um, there were existing programs out there that were working in that space, but um, like most ideas that you know are not original, we just thought we could do it a little bit better. And with the PGA brand, that's what we tried to do. So we initially thought that program was going to fit uh, in that, I guess you could call it the sub-elite amateur space where somebody maybe didn't make a state team or a VIS squad or a you know representative squad, but they still love the idea of playing professionally and they needed somewhere to hone their skills and hone their game. So we initially set the program up for that market, but as it turns out, it's attracted a, a totally different market to what we thought would get. So now it basically sits as essentially a pre-traineeship program um, where basically people have the idea that they want a career in golf. So they'll be off a single-figure handicap. They have the idea that they would like a career in golf, but they don't really know where to start. They're not quite at that um, stage of being able to apply for the trainee program or the, the member pathway program, which it's the name's changed on it. Um, and they're not good enough to play on the tour yet. Um, and they just they want a career in golf, but they just don't quite know what they're going to do. So that program, the performance program, sits in that space where they basically come into us for a period of 12 months and they're essentially doing the academic component of year one of the trainee program, the member pathway program. Um, but they're training with us for, for golf four days a week. So it's a Monday to Thursday program. It basically runs from early morning to sort of four o'clock in the afternoon um, and we spend a lot of time working on their game um, during that time. So we'll, we'll do two gym workouts a week on a Tuesday and Thursday morning with uh, Scott Williams, who's one of your guests um, on this show. Scotty does a great job. He's been with us since the start of that program. Uh, and we also do all the other um, uh, at coaching aspects as well. So we would basically split up a day into a morning and an afternoon. So the morning might look something like this so they might do the gym in the morning say it um say the gym might start at 7 45 or 7 30 and go through to about nine o'clock and then they'll get changed as quickly as they can and then we'll have a quick squad meeting to outline what we're doing for the rest of the day and then from say 9 30 through to lunchtime we'll be 
we'll, we'll be going through their, their skill work and their technique work. So we'll spend 45 minutes to an hour on putting, 45 minutes to an hour on short game, 45 minutes to an hour on long game as well. We'll go through all the various drills and activities that we need to go through there. Then we'll have some lunch, and after lunch, we'll get on the golf course. So we're pretty lucky. Sandhurst is a 36-hole facility, um, two really good golf courses there. Um, and pretty much any day of the week, you can get out there for nine holes without too much traffic, and that gives us the chance to change things around a bit, you know, play off the back tees, play off the ladies' tees, hit two tee shots, play two-ball worst ball, and do all the various games that you kind of need to be able to play to get the best out of your golf game. So... That performance program has been going for for five years. It's it's been a great program. Um, one I've really enjoyed coaching on. Yeah, it's cool. It gives the those players exposure to that high performance type training, um, which has to improve their game. I don't care who they are. If they're going to put even a tiny bit of time into their game in that environment, they're bound to get better. They're they're, they're certainly bound to improve. Yeah, so, I mean. I often wonder as well with the performance program how much of the improvement that the students make is my good coaching, as in the technique and the skill that I try and impart, or whether it's just a matter of time on task and that if I put anybody in that scenario of basically working full-time on their golf, that they'd improve the same. But um, you know that was our call to kind of create that environment, and the environment's a big reason why people – improve and get get the most out of themselves um i've lost count of how many times i've heard from you know an 18 year old coming out of high school i'm just gonna have a gap year just play golf well the gap year turns into you know one or two games of golf a week and five nights a week at the nightclub and um 15 hours of of work not too much else happens and they don't really improve so it's kind of like forced improvement i feel a program like the performance program yeah, and I uh, would don't um, say that you don't have any influence on that improvement. I'm sure that you've your your coaching has a has a fairly significant role to play in those in those in, in those golfers getting better. So as a coach, that must be pretty cool to have um, access to that type of setup where you can put those programs in place and and coach those type of golfers on a full time basis. Yeah, I mean it's really unique. Um, you know, Sandhurst from a coaching point of view. It's pretty much a dream location. Probably the only thing it doesn't have is one of those um, one of those indoor hitting studios where you open up the roller doors and you hit out onto the range with Pro Vs or Callaways or whatever your ball of choice is. That's probably the only thing it doesn't have. But, you know, the indoor coaching center is really good. It's got um, two hitting bays, a putting studio, a small gym, which Scott works out of, a physio room, you know, track mans putt labs it's a balance lab it's got everything you need as far as coaching goes and it's got um you know the the driving range itself is pretty good i shouldn't call it a driving range it's more of a practice fairway you know a grass tee practice fairway 270 meters long so 300 yards long um plenty of space to hit on the short game area is pretty decent um compared to most other private golf clubs that are out there Two putting greens, both are pretty different to each other. So it's got it's got everything that you need, and you can create the scenarios that you need to create. Probably the only thing missing would be the the tree aspect to it as well. Sandhurst is a bit of a an open linksy style of golf course, um, so it's kind of missing the the tree aspect. But that's that's really about it. It's certainly not wanting for for coaching facilities. So we're we're really lucky there. We're able to do 
what we need to do. There's enough space to um, get the students where they need to where they need to be. We can go on, on the golf course pretty much whenever we need to get on the golf course. So it's a great environment for for coaching, but also for the students that are coming into the program as well. Just just slightly off topic, um, you said you didn't do much club golf and coaching anymore. You did mostly this high performance stuff, yeah. but I'm curious about what. What changes from when you're coaching the club golfer to when you're coaching these high performance type players, if anything? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's more about just understanding your role as a coach. So with um, when I'm coaching these, if you want to call them high performance students, um, you can take a little bit more of a longer term development mindset. So you can you can break things up more into projects where. You might want to work on something, but at least you know you've got that particular um, athlete with you for you know a year, so you, you can see things through over over a period of time. So you might choose three to four projects that you're going to work on throughout the year, and you kind of just set aside the time to work on those. And you know that if it's not working today, you've got another chance tomorrow, another chance the day after that, and it should be better in you know a month's time. Whereas when you're coaching the recreational golfer. Unless they want to put in the time of effort, you really have to understand that it's kind of here and now for them. Um, and you've got a really um, tight amount of time to work in and they're not going to be able to practice as much as you'd probably like them to. So you need to make sure that you're biting off just the right amount and that you're working on things that are actually going to have an, Im- an impact or an influence on the game. So you might find it hard with the recreational golfer to work on some really um, big projects, maybe working on their pivot or something like that might be a bit of a hard thing to do. But if you can just give them the understanding of what the club's doing at the bottom of the swing and why the ball does what it does, just so they've got that understanding and then give this, give them some practical tools to use to try and get the best out of the game. And you kind of just have to leave it at that unless they're willing to come back and, and put in the long-term effort. Makes sense. Makes sense, mate. I appreciate your time tonight. We've, um, I've, uh, it's uh, we've got so much more to talk about. So I think we're definitely going to have to get you on for some of these um, shows that we're doing with Scotty to have a second coach on those um, conversations. But um, I certainly appreciate your time tonight coming in and chatting to me. But there's um, there's there's four questions that I like to ask everybody that comes on the podcast. So I'd like to throw those at you before I let you go. go so what advice do you have for coaches starting out? Coaches starting out, I would say start coaching. Just coach as much as you can, even if you're coaching for free. Just get in there and coach, spend time on task. Um, the more time you can spend coaching, the more time you've got to kind of hone your craft and figure out what works for you, what works for the student and just going from there. But um, if you're a coach starting out, you're probably not going to be able to work in that high performance, that development sort of space. Make sure you get really good at your bread and butter. So your bread and butter as a starting out coach is going to be the slice lesson, the shank, the hook, the top the more distance, getting out of bunkers, the basic chip shots, all that sort of stuff. So make sure that you're getting really good in that space um, and you'll be able to help your clients pretty quickly. That's really, yeah, I, I'm, I'm the same. I encourage all coaches to get out there and start doing it. It's it's a bit like this podcast. If you held off until it was perfect and then started it, you you just don't get started essentially. Yeah. So um, get out there and start doing it. And if you're giving the client the 
all the stuff that you have at that time, you're doing the right thing. So I think if you can do that and start coaching straight away, you're certainly going to improve more quickly. I agree there. So advice for players, hopefully there's a few players tuning into this podcast. So advice for the average player out there, what should they be doing? Well, get a lesson, um, whether it's from me or a different PJ professional, I think go and get a lesson, get an understanding for your own golf swing. So stop watching the stuff on YouTube, stop watching stuff from 50 different instructors that are in vogue right now because all of the stuff on YouTube is correct. Um, it just might not apply to you. So go and see a PJ professional, get an understanding of your own golf swing and your own golf game, and then have a single-minded focus on just that, you know, go on basically a YouTube detox. That's probably the best advice I can give for a a middle-of-the-road player. I would tend to agree with that one. Um, Anything that you would change in your career, if you had the chance to go back and change anything, is there anything that you would do and change from the past? Yeah, I, I think as a player, there's certainly things I would change there. And I guess, um, with the experience that I've got now, I definitely would have pushed myself to practice a lot harder and play a lot harder as well. Play more tournaments, play basically just play as much as I can and practice as much as I can. Because I think um, looking back, you know, even when I was a junior at Werribee, I would practice a bit, practice up to a point, but you know, there's there's no way I was spending as much time as I needed to out there and obviously I got my uh, got the results I deserve based on the time that I spent on it so yeah I would have put a lot more effort in a lot more time time on tasks just practicing and playing and getting out there as much as I can but I'd also give myself a bit more permission to be a bit more freewheeling I think um, probably one of my weaknesses when I was playing and it still is that way now when I when I play I'm probably a bit too careful trying to do things too perfectly whereas I think um Early on, if I just you know, kind of hit it hard and went and found it and hit it harder again, and kind of just played a bit more caveman golf, I might have been a bit better off. Caveman golf, I'm kind of steal that term. I think that's a that's a pretty cool way to to talk about it. I think I think I'll steal that one. Yeah, well, it's not for everybody. I think most students uh, have too much caveman golf, and we're trying to smarten them up. But I you know, I think um, I was probably a little bit too careful and a little bit too considered um and i used to get quite anxious when i would play um and that would certainly hurt the performance so i kind of just need to freewheel it a little bit more we actually spoke about that with scotty in the in the um the podcast show that came out just prior to yours actually about swing power and um we're talking about it's it's crazy as a coach how often you can uh, get someone just to swing more freely and the swing faults tend to drop off yeah. If they swing a bit more, more powerfully and more freely. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, so five years' time, where do you see coaching or yourself? So you can answer either or or both. You can take your pick, but in five years' time, coaching or yourself? Yeah, so I'll, I'll answer the, the coaching one, seeing as that's the one you mentioned first. But I think in five years' time, coaching will – it will pretty much be the same as, as what it is today, right? But I, I think um, – We'll have some further advances advances in technology, which will make um, coaching a little bit easier, as in the, the diagnosis part will be a little bit easier. Um, but 
I think the the next frontier, if you like, for for coaching is not so much the technology. It's more about the communication with players and getting that understanding um, of your player and being able to build that relationship so you can then get the best out of them. I think we should be able to see some really big advances um, in that. You know, coaching from what I've seen over the limited time that I've been doing, it just kind of works in in spits and cycles. You know, we've had that technology era where everyone was, you know, big on technology and sports science and things just have a way of finding their way back to balance. So I think we've been a little bit out of balance with the technology and the sports science um, and it'll slowly come back into balance with more of the communication and the relationship building and getting to know your player. And then it'll go too far the other way and then it'll have to come back. It seems to be a common answer, and again, I, w- I would tend to be on the on the same page as you. Is I think as a coach, you have to understand that information and and be across that. But then, how you get that across to your players is that art of coaching, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. So that's that's um that's really cool. So where can people find you if they are after more information on any of your programs or your coaching in general? Yeah, so there's, there's a few places. So first of all, we'll probably start with the website, which uh, is pgaclp.com.au. That's got all of the PGA Center for Learning and Performance programs up there. Um, and then Instagram as well, which is just at pgaclp. Um, so I need to post on Instagram a bit more. It's been tough for the last six months when we haven't been doing much coaching, but I promise everybody that um, you know when we're able to get back out there again, I'll start taking some videos and some photos and posting some cool stuff and sh- um, sharing more of what I do with people. I'll certainly put some links in the show notes for this one so you can find those links. Just quickly, how has COVID uh, impacted the the the, um, the programs at, at the centre? Yeah, so the I guess the private face-to-face coaching is uh, obviously shut down. Um, we haven't been able to do that for quite a while. Uh, we've kind of pivoted the performance program recently though. So as we speak now, we're in term four. So we actually spent all of term three and possibly all of term four coming up running the program remotely. So basically what we do is uh, instead of the face-to-face training, uh, we basically set the students' assignments to do on a, I guess you could say, a daily basis and a weekly basis. And we check in anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour every day in the morning. Um, and just basically set the task for the day and have a bit of a chat about what's going on. Um, the funny thing is, I'm actually I've I've learned quite a bit coaching through this time. Uh, when you, I guess, the first thing I've learned is from a stats point of view. Even though we're running the program remotely, if you value stats and you're actually checking in on the stats of your students really frequently, like I'm checking in on the stats probably twice a week that they're actually really compliant, haven't had any student slip-ups yet with not putting any stats in. So I've, I'm probably getting the best information that I've ever had over the course of the performance program, doing it remotely, which sounds weird. And the second thing that I've probably learned is we've been doing uh, technique coaching um, over Google Meet and and Coach Now using a bit of a combination there. And I, I've found that um, I've still been able to have some really good um, impact and good influence on the students, but I'm not biting off that much in a le- in a coaching session. So I'll I'll pick something to work on that I know that we'll both be able to work on without that human touch, I, I guess you could say. And then I just make sure that I follow through on that over a period of you know one, two, three, four weeks. So there's a bit of a theme 
Um, so it might sound boring for the student and it might sound boring for the person listening, but I found that's worked quite well, just hammering on the same thing for, you know, two, three, four weeks and then seeing where it actually lands. Um, and we're, we're getting some pretty good results, even though we're in lockdown. I think it sounds great. I think Kobe's given us a chance to pull things down and pull them apart and build them up again as improved. So I yeah. think you've, you've probably come up with some strategies that you can take forward and improve the program even further. I agree. I, I was of the opinion that um, the the technique-based um, online coaching that I just I didn't think I could do a good job with it and therefore it wasn't really worth offering it. But I think I've proven to myself that it, it can be done and the, the students have really embraced it and taken it on board. So, um, you know, lockdowns in Victoria, no excuse basically. No, awesome, Nick. Again, mate, thank you so much for your time tonight. I certainly appreciate it, and we'll hopefully be able to catch up face-to-face again real soon and get out and play a game of golf. You bet, Brent. That was good fun. Really uh, really appreciate, appreciate you having me on the show, and, yeah, we'll catch up again for part two.